What's up, Punxsutawneyans? Welcome to the Jesus Movies Podcast, where we search movies for lines, scenes, characters, and themes that trace truth in the gospel. I'm Kevin Carlock. I'm here with my fellow 19th century French poetry stranger, Graham Hooten, and our hope is that you'll join us on the great journey of storytelling by asking thoughtful questions about why certain movies and moments resonate or don't resonate, and what that might say about the movie, about you, and perhaps about humanity as a whole. Today we're talking about Groundhog Day, and Graham, my one question for you is... Why do we dread change but find life meaningless without it? This is actually one of the films that has the most uh, Jesus in movies or gospel in movies literature around it. It seems like there are a lot of different religious folks that really love this movie, whether they come from a Christian background, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, because I think there's this broad uh, idea that virtue matters and virtue is inescapable. I think that this movie does a great job of bringing value to those small little moments, especially because we're repeating the same day over and over and over. Uh, On a separate note, I think, especially living in the midst of a pandemic, there's been a lot of Groundhog Day jokes, right? Like every day we wake up and it's the same. You're not leaving your house. Uh, You're experiencing what feels like March 135th, you know? And so maybe there's something to be learned for us here about Uh, living each day as it is individually as opposed to seeing it as simply uh, another tally on a collection of days that feel very, very similar. To your point on feeling stuck in change and the inevitability of virtue kind of got me thinking about how Danny Rubin wrote this book called How to Write Groundhog Day, which was basically like his explanation of how and why he wrote this movie. And he said he wanted to test a scenario where like would change happen to a character who really didn't want to change if you like apply the force of infinity time like does over an infinity period of time do we like eventually reach the best version of ourselves? does that make sense that's an interesting question and does bill murray reach the best version of himself in this movie i think some people would argue yes some people would probably argue no it parallels groundhog day to ecclesiastes the idea that We work and toil under the sun, and meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And I think that's the general character progression that Phil slash Bill Murray goes through throughout the film. What is meaningless? What isn't meaningless? Um, How do we derive meaning from a scenario in which our decisions don't have any direct consequences on the world around us? And maybe this movie, in a way, argues that there is meaning to be found internally as opposed to meaning that's found externally i don't know i think as, as we dive a little bit more into this movie i'd be curious to see uh do we think that phil is ultimately freed from this purgatory-like situation because he learns to act and live in a way that is selfless or is he saved from the situation by rita um which i think is kind of an interesting distinction when we look at it through a biblical lens um Maybe this is getting a little bit too far ahead, but do you feel like the movie argues that Phil earns his way out of the Groundhog Day scenario, or do you think he is more pulled out of it by somebody else? I think it feels like he earns his way, and I think that's in some respects why this movie doesn't really work for me, as I think it sets up a compelling premise, but I just don't like premise movies in general. And by a premise movie, I mean the trailer would be like really sort of pitching this idea of like, okay, what if you were stuck in this small town and you had to live the day over and over and over again? It's kind of like a what if blank movie. And then like we get to see 
the characters play with that over the course of the film. And I feel like a lot of times these movies start in an interesting way, but they don't really go the whole distance. Other examples would be like, um, yes, man. Like, what if you had to say yes to everything or click? What if you had a remote control that actually controlled your world? Or uh, what's another good premise movie? One of the interesting ones I've seen recently is Palm Springs, which is on Hulu. It was released in 2020 starring Andy Samberg, but it essentially borrows the same concept of Groundhog Day, except they place him in Palm Springs, California on the day of some random wedding. And I think it's interesting because this that movie was made, I believe, what, 27 years after Groundhog Day? And their method of escape in this movie is not through virtue. It's simply through like beating the system and creating a time travel machine or something. So it's interesting uh, how like 27 years later, maybe we're moving a little bit further away from that virtue argued escape point. Maybe it's more like, Hey, we just have to figure out a way to, to beat this unjust system. Well, so I want to affirm, like, I think this answer is more compelling than build the time travel machine to escape answer, because I think this movie argues that, there's meaning and fulfillment found in serving and in giving of yourself instead of only taking. So I guess Groundhog Day beats Palm Springs based on what you said for me in that regard. But I think in some ways, even though we have this big moment when Rita comes in is like, I bought you, you know, you're mine. And like, that's the rescue. It just doesn't feel like it to me. And, and that decision feels unmotivated on a character level to me. Like, what is it that has swayed her like, she seems so stable and so discerning and so clear-headed, like she wouldn't make an impulsive one-day decision. So maybe the movie seems a little bit flawed at a construction level of, like, what it would take for Rita to actually buy Phil's change as uh, worth investing in. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think there's probably a level of vulnerability that is displayed by Phil near the end that definitely wasn't at the beginning. And I know this kind of touches on some of our awards, but... Uh, I agree. It does seem a little bit quickly discerned and uh, acted upon from Rita's perspective, especially in the in the final day scenario. But uh, again, this is not a perfect movie. I, I do still think it makes some interesting theological arguments that uh, I'm excited to dive more deeply into. Great. So, Graham, why don't you fire away with your Lazarus Award for the high-key gospel moment of Groundhog Day? So my Lazarus Award is the final scene where Phil wakes up with Rita. Something is different. Good or bad? Anything different is good. Mm. But this could be real good. Why are you here? I bought you. I own you. But why are you still here? You said stay, so I stay. So Phil has spent this entire movie pretty much trying to escape this Groundhog Day scenario. And somewhere along the lines, he's fallen in love with Rita and he's done everything he can to manipulate her into falling back into love with him. He's gone through phases uh, of being angry at people, of living an incredibly hedonistic life, of trying to live sacrificially so that he earns her love. But really in this final scene, we see that it's not Bill Murray slash Phil's merit that allows him to escape from the scenario, rather the fact that Rita, the one perfect, almost perfect character in this movie, has chosen to buy him. And so the verse that I stuck with was 1 Peter 1, 18-19. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect." 
I think this scene specifically reminds me how even in the moments where we don't believe that we deserve God's love, we are reminded that through Jesus, God purchased us. And so we wake up undeserving, but it's really his love that has saved us from ourselves. There's nothing that we could do to earn our way out of this scenario where we are completely in despair, uh, unsavable on our own merit. And yet God, Rita, the character in this scenario, chooses to buy him with everything that is her own. She empties her entire wallet, her entire pocketbook, because she believes that Phil is worth it. And really, that's a small picture at what Jesus did. He emptied all of himself because he believed that we are worth it. And so that's why this short scene is powerful to me and wins my Lazarus Award. That's solid. So yeah, it harkens back to our earlier discussion. Does it feel like it's justified? I think that's an interesting question, because if this was truly a one-to-one gospel scenario, I feel like Rita would almost take Phil's place in the purgatory Groundhog Day scenario. She does empty her entire wallet, uh, which is admirable and I think demonstrates a level of sacrificial love, but in some ways the consequence is still going unpaid. And so... I think it's not a perfect one-to-one, but for me, the idea that Rita owns Phil, the idea that she has bought him fully is what resonates to me as being that gospel moment. Yeah, and I really like that she buys at a price that's way higher than was needed. Like, she pays with every penny, because it was at, what, like 65-ish, 60, $65? Yeah, it was like $55, and then... And then she's like 318, or 3-something and 18 cents. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I should know that. But yeah, she goes above and beyond. It's like a prodigal purchase, right? Like a foolishly giving away. That does feel kind of Jesus-y to me, I guess. Yeah. And she even says to him, like, I feel like I got a bargain. And so that's maybe not reflective of what we deserve as God's children, but maybe more reflective of God's attitude towards us. Like, I gave up my son. What more wouldn't I give up for you? You know, like he who gives his own son would give us immeasurably more. So I think I see Rita's character here really exemplifying those Jesus-like traits. That's great. I like it. Uh, Speaking of what we deserve, that's a good segue into my Lazarus Award. I'm giving my Lazarus Award to Phil's line to Rita, I've never met anyone like you. And then he concludes uh, this little conversation in his bed saying, I don't deserve someone like you. I think you're the kindest, sweetest, prettiest person. I've never met in my life. I've never seen anyone that's nicer to people than you are. I don't deserve someone like you. So I know that that was kind of hard to hear because the audio is muffled and quiet and this is a 1993, is that yep. right, Graham? Yep. Uh, movie, and so it's kind of old. But uh, yeah, there was. I just really felt like Jesus was kind of leaping out of the movie to me when I watched that moment because I think he gets at what uh, I think of as being a C.S. Lewis idea from Mere Christianity, this idea that there's like a moral law or a standard of right and wrong that we all sort of feel as human beings. And then there's this... Uh, complimentary feeling that we have as humans that we know we don't keep it. So this is book one, chapter four of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Quote, It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind that law and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. 
And this is, you know, an idea that's expounded upon in, in several chapters and paragraphs in his book. But basically this idea that like there is some kind of good or right and wrong out there and that we do not meet it is very much what I see in Groundhog Day. And it reminds me of Leviticus 11, to 45. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And so this commandment from God, uh, be holy as I am holy, we see it echoed throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. Just in Leviticus alone, we see it in 1144 to 45, 19, 2, 27, 20, 26, 21, 28, and then uh, Exodus 19, 6, and if you want to go New Testament, 1 Peter 1:15 uh, to 16, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. The only reason I'm listing all these is to say that like God seems to be intent on this idea of I am holy, therefore imitate me, be holy like me. And I think that feels overwhelming, right? Uh, and so I don't know if you're familiar with the cross chart, Graham, or sort of this is this is where podcasts kind of break down because this is a very visual thing. You can email us at jesusandmovies at gmail.com and I'd be more than happy to send these diagrams. But there's one where it's kind of like a splitting lines, like a V. And on the increasing axis, we have growing knowledge of God's holiness. And on the decreasing axis, we have increasing or growing knowledge of our sinfulness or depravity. And this is the subjective view that as we grow in our faith, we see God as more and more holy and ourselves as more and more sinful. And the cross, the difference between them gets greater and greater. So we appreciate what Jesus did on the cross more. Does that make sense? Yeah. This is a very popular chart, but the one that I think doesn't get talked about as much is the objective view, and this is what's actually true, and that is that these two lines are completely parallel. God's holiness is never changing, and our sinfulness, believe it or not, is never changing either. These things do not get closer. So in the subjective view, they're changing, but in the objective view, they stay the same, which brings us to the point here of how do we try to bridge this gap? There is this standard, this high parallel line of goodness and holiness that God embodies, and we are on this low line parallel to it of sinfulness and depravity. And there's basically four ways that we try to bridge this gap. And this is all I'll say. Determination, like trying to jump up and grab that bar, trying to earn and merit uh, holiness ourselves. Despair, or like fake authenticity, like acknowledging there is a bar, but pouting or putting our arms you know, across our chest saying we can't do it. The third one is denial, pretending like the gap doesn't exist. And then the last one will be faith or putting our trust in an external rescue to help bridge that gap for us. And so I think we see some of these play out in this movie, right? We see the determination to be good. We also see the despair of I'm going to give up and commit suicide over and over and over from Phil. And then we also see denial, which is maybe the more hedonistic side, like pretending like it doesn't exist and that we have this free ticket to do whatever we want. But ultimately, all three of these methods kind of kind of fall through. And I would even argue that the movie doesn't really present the faith or external rescue. Like you said, I think it would look like Rita taking his place in the time trap of Groundhog Day. But but anyways, yeah, this moment kind of jumped off the screen for me as not deserving someone like you, Phil, kind of recognizing that there is this goodness that Rita embodies that he does not have, he does not deserve, and getting to see him toil with, like, how do I try to bridge that gap? What do you think? Yeah, I think you made uh, some really compelling and interesting points there. How important do you think it is that Phil grows in the knowledge of his own maybe sinfulness or his own depravity in comparison to Rita? And how do you see that continue to develop throughout the film? Well, what's so interesting, right, is that at the beginning, Phil is this proud, egotistical guy, right? He thinks he's going to be a big deal and get a uh, job with a better network 
And she, Rita even says throughout the movie, like, you're so proud, you're so arrogant, I'm looking for a man who's humble. But what's so interesting to me is that deep down beneath it, when uh, Phil is actually honest, we see that he believes that he is unworthy and he knows that he is, you know, not who he claims to be, not who he wants to be. So to answer your question, I would say, I don't know that he really needs to grow in his knowledge of his sinfulness as much as he needs to be honest about the fact that he feels it. Hmm. Because it seems like he kind of stuffs it in a in a box and doesn't want to go there. But deep down, he seems to have a clear awareness that he doesn't deserve Rita. And so I think if we could just be honest about what we're thinking and what we're feeling, instead of trying to deny that gap, a radical rescue like Christianity offers becomes appealing and actually makes sense. Right. It almost takes some sort of, I know you've used the word liminal before, but liminal or life-changing experience to reveal the truth that he's always known underneath him and so it's really easy to hide behind that when he's working at the news station living in a world that almost rewards his selfishness but once he's faced with the direct consequences of that he begins to unravel and this is something we've talked about in past podcasts like uh this pastor that uh i used to be on i used to be in his congregation in los angeles and uh he talked about how when he was a young pastor, it was like, I got to remind people of their pride. That's the core sin. Like people need to see that their pride is actually really damaging and then they'll want Jesus. And he said he quickly learned that people are very aware of their ineptitude and their inability. And they actually need to know that God actually might love them, that there might actually be a God that they've got wrong, that maybe they don't actually understand who this God is. And we'll talk more about that later. In the meantime, your Mary Magdalene Award for a low-key gospel moment in Groundhog Day. My Mary Magdalene Award goes to the, quote, is this what you think love is scene? Did you call up my friends and ask them what I like and what I don't like? No. Is, Is this what love is for you? No, this is real. This is love. Stop saying that. You must be crazy. I could never love someone like you, Phil, because you'll never love anyone but yourself. That's not true. I don't even like myself. Give me another chance. That's for making me care about you. And this is also my pulpit pick. And so the reason I want to make this my pulpit pick is I think this is one of the critiques that the movie gets really right. Um, The first verse I'm pulling is 1 Corinthians 13, uh, one through three. And so first Corinthians 13, which we've touched on multiple times in this podcast is often a passage that's read at weddings. It's a really good description as to what true Christ-like biblical love is. But I think verses one through three specifically do a great job of describing the opposite of that, which I think are characteristics that Phil very much embodies. So quote, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And I think specifically what we see with these verses in context of this film is that Phil gains all the knowledge in the world about who Rita is. Uh, He actually does a lot of great things towards people, supposedly. He cares for the homeless man. He saves a kid falling out of a tree. He helps a man uh, who's choking on steak uh, live through giving him the Heimlich maneuver. So he's actually doing all these good things. But in reality, they are motivated with the end goal of getting Rita to sleep with him. And so is this true love? Is this true love that he's doing something in order to gain something else? Uh, Love for him is motivated in a self-serving by a self-serving 
conclusion that maybe he can get something that actually satisfies him. And similarly, I think this relates to what Jesus says here in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, quote, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And so, I think Rita really hits the nail on the head here that, hey, you know what, you might say you love me because you do all these right things, and you know all these things, and you've done all this research, but in reality, like, that is not love. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, which we're going to get into a little bit later, that's love, selflessness, patience, kindness, uh, and yet... Phil seems to have got it completely wrong. So that's why this is my Mary Magdalene Award and my pulpit pick. Yeah, that's super solid. I totally agree that this this is one of the critiques I think the movie very much gets correct. All right, Kev, what do you got for your Mary Magdalene Award? Uh, this will be short. I'm giving my Mary Magdalene Award to Phil's omniscience in the diner. What about me, Phil? Do you know me too? I know all about you. You like producing, but you hope for more than Channel 9 Pittsburgh. Well, everyone knows that. You like boats, but not the ocean. You go to a lake in the summer with your family up in the mountains. There's a long wooden dock and a boathouse with boards missing from the roof. And a place you used to crawl underneath to be alone. You're a sucker for French poetry and rhinestones. You're very generous. You're kind to strangers and children. And when you stand in the snow, you look like an angel. How are you doing this? So if you listen to our podcast regularly, this might remind you of the when Harry met Sally moment of uh, Harry just going in on like, these are the things that I love about you, Sally. It almost kind of has that romantic vibe to it. But in this scene, it's more of just like uh, Phil's trying to prove to Rita that he's stuck in this Groundhog Day time trap. And he does so by saying, look how much I know about you that I otherwise wouldn't know. But to me, the parallel, maybe you've already kind of connected the dots here is that God knows everything about us, and that can be really moving. I just don't know that we really believe that, Graham. I don't know that I really believe that, that God truly knows the number of hairs counted on my head, as uh, Matthew says in his gospel, uh, Matthew 10.30. But here's a few verses to kind of to show that the Bible actually does proclaim a God who knows everything, not only about the world, but about us as well. So here's Job 38, verses 4 to 7. Where were you? Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Uh, And this whole chapter goes on and on and on. It's an epic response. Um, Psalm 147, 4 through 5. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. We talked about Matthew 10. Here's Psalm 139, which I think is probably the goat for this idea. Uh, Verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So there's just a few verses amongst a whole Bible of God knows everything about you and everything about this world. And so I see the gospel coming through in that moment between Phil and Rita at the diner. Yeah. 
I love that. And it almost makes me wish that I could sit down and have that face to face with God, right? Like I know oh, totally. through the Bible that there are things that are intrinsically true about us as humanity, right? That we were knit together in our mother's womb, that we were made in God's image. And yes, I do believe these things to be true, but man, like how real and how emotional and how vulnerable would it be to like sit before God and have him tell us our deepest and darkest thoughts and just the things that we struggle with that other people know that we don't struggle with. And so I think the cool thing is um, I think prayer is the avenue through which God intends us to communicate with him and come to him in the midst of our brokenness. And I think for her, you, you see how that is incredibly disarming for Rita. Yeah. And it really ought to be disarming for all of us, right? Like, who could possibly know that much about us? That's just an overwhelming, it's an emotional thought. Hmm. Uh, take me to your false prophet award for a non-biblical argument Groundhog Day makes. So my false prophet award goes to Phil saving the boy who falls from the tree. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? You little brat. You have never thanked me. I'll see you tomorrow. Maybe. So this is obviously a really minuscule scene in context of a movie full of a lot of different scenes. Uh, I actually think this movie cuts between so, so many different scenes and so many different timelines. It's, it's hard to keep track at points. But I'm really interested in what this moment specifically indicates about Phil's intentions and about the movie's intentions uh, in terms of what our responsibility is to do good in this world. And so the movie seems to argue that through dutifully and even begrudgingly completing random acts of kindness, Phil can somehow merit his way out of Groundhog Day. Um, But I think that if we look at this through the context of the world and sin in the world, we actually can't escape our world through simply meriting ourselves out of purgatory or Groundhog Day. And so even if we are to accept the fact that I touched on in my Lazarus Award that Rita bought him on the final day, like who is taking the punishment that Phil ultimately deserved? And so um, I think the movie, and this is maybe where the movie gets a little bit unclear to me, like is it arguing that Rita bought him out of Groundhog Day, or is it arguing that Phil merited his way? And it almost seems like there's they worked together. It was a cooperative movement in order to free him from the scenario. When in reality, it was God all along that freed. It wasn't. It's not a cooperative movement through which God frees us from our sinfulness. Yes, there's the reality that we have to choose to accept the grace that's already been given to us. But really, it's God who's doing the first and final work. And so um, I'm choosing Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 here, which is classic. But uh, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is out of receiving the goodness that God has already given to us that we get to follow with Ephesians 2, 10 to go do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so I think the ordering of these events is really important in understanding how uh, the theology of God's grace works and how we are to receive that. And so that's why this small instance of Phil begrudgingly doing something good because it's going to earn him something greater in the end uh, is my false prophet award because I don't think that's how God's grace works. Yeah, that's great. So it's kind of the sequence is out of order, right? 
instead of sort of going Q&A on that, it's very similar to what I'm going to talk about in my False Profit Award. So I'm just going to go right into it. I'm giving my False Profit Award to the best version of you is an elite humanitarian. And this is going to be my pulpit pick. So buckle down. Okay, so as Graham kind of hinted at there, Phil tries all these different strategies of beating his Groundhog Day time travel predicament, right? But the only one that works is the one in which he becomes a superstar humanitarian by doing the following. Phil pays the homeless, brings coffee and pastries to the new shoot, reads Johann Strauss in his free time, hugs and chats enthusiastically with the hotel doorman, ice sculpts masterpieces, hugs and buys every form of insurance possible from his high school friend Ned, feeds and tries to save the life of a homeless man with CPR, quotes Chekhov on live air, saves a kid aforementioned uh, from falling out of a tree, fixes an elderly woman's flat tire, saves a man from choking on steak with the aforementioned Heimlich maneuver, uh, and then lights a woman's cigarette on his way out of that restaurant, masters the piano at the night party, gives a young woman the pep talk she needed to not get cold feet with her fiancé Freddie, and then gives both of them highly coveted tickets to a wrestling tournament they wanted as a wedding gift, and then fixes an elderly man's back posing as a doctor. And so uh, one approach for false profit here would for me to kind of do a grand did, which I think is great, which is to say like the better version of ourselves is these things, but it's totally out of order. Like he's doing it in order to be righteous instead of doing it from a place of righteousness given externally by Jesus. Right. And so that's kind of the, I had actually written Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 would be the route that I would have gone for that. So you and I were just completely on the same page there, Graham. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's totally true, but because this is my pulpit pick, I want to dig a little deeper. Because my hunch is that for some of you listening, and certainly I'm speaking to myself here as well, at least once in your life you've thought to yourself, what does the best version of myself actually look like? Uh, is that not the million dollar question? I mean, just consider how much of our advertisements basically take that form. Like, the the best version of yourself would buy, wear, endorse, or watch this product. Like, this is what you need to become who you really want to be. Uh, and it doesn't matter, you know, if it's a diet or a condom. Like, everything is sort of fitting into this narrative of, like, this is what you need to get where you want to be. Um, or at least good advertising, at least I would argue. Uh, yet to return to our million-dollar question of what actually is the best version of ourselves, I think all of these books and seminars and podcasts and celebrities and articles and feeds and channels and tips and tricks would have us believe that the best version of ourselves is this totally selfless, relentlessly humanitarian, yet inexplicably unfatigued reckoning of social justice. And when we think about maybe why we hold that belief, especially as Christians, uh, perhaps we look at the life of Jesus, right? Healing the sick, feeding the homeless, exposing the Pharisees, defending the prostitutes, bathing the disciples, and dining with his own betrayer. Talk about morality, Graham. That is a good guy, if I've ever heard of one. Uh, but it's in moments like these that I think I want to ask an actually kind of hard question. Are you sure you know who this Jesus is? Are you sure you know who the God of the Bible really is? Are you sure you know what God really sees as the best version of you? And consequently, are you sure that it's up to you to get there? Um, and so these are huge questions, right, that have been debated since the beginning of time itself, all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Because their sin of eating the fruit is essentially an answer to the question, are we sure we know who God is? Uh, and so in light of that, we would be wise to lean on the wisdom and experience of those Christians who have gone before us by looking through the most preserved and revered documents in church history. Uh, so for instance, my denomination, the Presbyterian Church of America, submits to such time-tested wisdom and experience by holding to a constitution 
uh, a constitution that's been reformed and refined over centuries, just like our American constitution or the Bill of Rights. Uh, And so this Presbyterian constitution is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and its ideas are additionally expressed in its larger and shorter catechisms to present some of these ideas in more basic question and answer format. And so these catechisms are structured to reflect uh, a proper order and a natural sequence of both importance and kind of logical continuity. And so here's the point of all this context. The very first of its 196 questions asks this, and maybe you've heard this before. What is the chief and highest end of man? Graham, pop quiz, do you know what the answer is in the Westminster Larger Catechism? To uh, be known by God and to serve God? You're close. It is two infinitives, but those aren't the ones. It's to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Mm. And so maybe that's kind of surprising. Like, I know that was surprising to me the first time I heard it. Like, hundreds and hundreds of years of debate and brilliance come to this answer of, what is the chief end of man? Like, what's my chief purpose in life? to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. Uh, And certainly that feels like maybe not enough doing, right? Like, isn't our purpose to kind of love God and love others? Like, that's what God says his two big commandments are, right? So maybe it feels like it's butting heads with that. Um, But I think this reveals that we have really no idea how to live this Christian life. Like, we think it's doing, doing more and more, better and better, all for God. Uh, But what if it's actually like a three-part cycle of faith in God, faith that motivates us to obey him, and then a call to obedience that we inevitably fail, which moves us and requires our repentance. And then that repentance that God uses to bring us back to faith in him and who he is and what that means for us. And so we're going around and around and around. And what if this trifold pattern of faith, obedience, repentance is really the blueprint of a life of meaning and, wait for it, rest? which I think is the great antithesis of what Phil is doing in Groundhog Day, Uh, which leads me to the end of this pulpit pick in my chosen Bible verse for the false prophet teaching of Groundhog Day, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus died not so that we could do things for him, but so that we could rest in what he has already done for us. In Christ, there is freedom to bring justice into the world, but there's also freedom from the exhausting burden of needing to bring justice into the world. Against a backdrop of religions that demand we strain as hard as we can to climb the moral ladder to enlightenment or salvation, Christianity uniquely offers a God that climbed down that ladder himself just to carry us to the top. So instead of experiencing true rest in Jesus' atonement, Groundhog Day tells us that the best version of ourselves is the one where we have to do the most we can to improve the society around us, a pursuit that frankly I think will leave you feeling inept, self-loathsome in your ineptitude, and just plain exhausted. And so that's why it's my false prophet. I think you hit a lot of really great and interesting points there along the way. Um, and I think the idea that we can merit ourselves to saving this world is maybe the one of the ones that's more prominent in our society today. We have to have all the right beliefs and fight for all the right political causes and advocate for um, all of the people who are being wrongly persecuted. And I think there is like so much biblical merit in this, and there's so much Jesus in that, and wanting to care for the marginalized and, and wanting to fight uh, injustice in the world. But you're right, like that's such a tough and incredibly tough burden to bear. Um, and when we put the weight of that on our shoulders, it can be incredibly exhausting. And I love that. I'm reading a book right now called Gentle and Lowly by 
Dane Ortland, I believe, and um, it really centers on that verse you used in in Matthew um, and Matthew 11 that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart, and that we can actually go to Him and receive rest because we don't have to take on the weight of the world. Um, and one of the other things I wanted to reference during the course of this podcast it was this prayer, the Serenity Prayer, that came up um, by Reinhold Niebuhr, who's one of the more prominent. Protestant theologians of the 20th century, and so um, it, this is a prayer he wrote in 1951 that's actually been um, adopted by Alcoholics Anonymous all across the world, and I think wow. this really does a great job of getting at that. It says, God, give us grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace taking as Jesus did the sin the sinful world as it is not as I would have it trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you in the next amen I just think that prayer is like lights out for me because um like he it's the idea that Jesus is gentle and lowly and he gives us grace first and that um, there are things in this world that can be changed and there's things in this world that can't be changed. And it takes, takes true wisdom to distinguish like, what do I put my energy towards? Um, and also like, look, I'm going to be, I'm going to try to be reasonably happy in this life, but trying to find Eden in the midst of earth is like, it simply doesn't exist. And yes, we're going to get glimpses of heaven here on earth through what God is doing in and around us. But really like supreme happiness and joy is when we are with God forever at last. And when we try to create that here on earth, I think we ultimately fail and fall short. So um, I'm in, I'm in hundred percent alignment with you. And um, I don't know, this prayer was just a total knockout for me. Yeah, I, I like that you read that. And I know for time purposes, I've got to keep this short, but I think this is a an introduction into a broader conversation that's challenging, which is how much action do we take against a fallen world? You know, this is something, this has been on my mind, at least I'm probably on yours too for 2020 and 2021. Like when we see these, you know, racist acts and traces of slavery and things like that, like it, it should probably motivate, you know, some sense of like, how can I sort of bring more justice into this world? But then we have to sort of like that prayer that you read does there's sort of this discernment act of the balancing of how can I do something without trying to do everything? And how can I be in a restful contemplative uh, union with Christ's state enough to where I can kind of discern this is something that God has asked of me in his scripture versus like, this is something that maybe I want to do for me, you know, like it's just tough. Like a lot of these things that, comes down to a heart level of why are we really doing this um and this is tough right because uh so like my ruf campus minister at davidson would say like i'm all for doing something but you i'm not for doing everything you know i think maybe jesus is similar because you know we see so much of jesus's life is actually like praying on the mountainside by himself or spending time with just peter and john you know it's not like like jesus does these kind of social justice things but he's not like that's not his MO is to like change the world fundamentally. Like his, his MO is to proclaim himself as the son of God and offer salvation to those who would believe in him. You know, he's not trying to like fix everything. Does that make sense? Or like he will fix everything one day. And the fact that all of his miracles and everything that he does and his interactions with people, whether it's healing the bleeding woman, raising Lazarus from the dead or feeding the 5,000 are simply indicators of his character of what he's already going to do eternally. 
And so are we like, sometimes we look at those Bible stories of healing and we're like, oh my gosh, like Jesus is number one, which is true. But what if we viewed those Bible stories as only indicative of Jesus's character of like the greater war that he's already won? You know, like, are we too busy trying to make our own little Bible, Jesus Bible stories instead of viewing in context like, hey, Jesus did miracles within the context of the fact that he has already done the greatest miracle. And to think that he did all those things like at the age of 30 and beyond, right? Like he doesn't start his ministry until the last like, you know, five, yeah. five, 10% of his life. So this is something that I think our culture just doesn't really understand about Jesus, right? Like the secular world does kind of paint him as this incredible moral guy. But when we look at the Bible, we see that he actually like could have done a lot more than he did. Mm, you know, yeah. that's kind of counterintuitive yeah. in some ways. Like he's, he's kind of hailed as this incredible social justice pioneer, but, uh, and he did kind of do things that are obviously noteworthy and, uh, yeah, this is just a this is a complex discussion, and I think one that Groundhog Day lends us to because I don't think that the best version of myself is an elite social justice warrior or a Superman humanitarian. So uh, email us if you want to talk more about that. Jesus in movies at gmail.com. In the meantime, Graham, your Jesus Award. So my Jesus Award goes pretty clearly to Rita. I think Rita is honestly the only real suitable option for the Jesus Award in this movie, and I'm just going to take a look at her through the eyes of Phil and this quote that he says to her as she's falling asleep one night. I think you're the kindest, sweetest, prettiest person I've ever met in my life. I've never seen anyone that's nicer to people than you. In this movie, Phil is the one variable that is changing, but Rita is an absolute constant. The way that she treats people with dignity, how she finds joy in the small and little things, how she celebrates dancing to the Pennsylvania polka when Phil is so uh, disgruntled and dismayed that the people would choose to engage in something as, as gleeful and as joyful and as simple as that. Um, and so I think Rita throughout the film really embodies everything that Phil is not. And so, like I said, uh, I mentioned first Corinthians 13, one through three, the idea that, uh, without love, we are a noisy symbol or a clanging gong. Rita is the opposite of that. And when we look at first Corinthians 13, four through seven. I think she truly embodies what love is. She says, the, the, the verse says, Quote, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I think this is a really great descriptor of who Rita is in this film. Think about how terribly Phil continues to treat her. He makes fun of her taste in women, her relentless optimism. He makes fun of uh, how she treats the cameraman and how she seems to embrace this tiny little town of Punxsutawney for all that it is. I think it is through spending time with her that Phil's heart is ultimately changed. And so for me, it's pretty clear, but this is why Rita gets my Jesus Award. I totally agree. I don't think there's much more that needs to be said. I like that you brought it back to 1 Corinthians 13. And yeah, so you basically got to pick Rita or Phil, right? And I think the irony is that it should be Phil. Like he's the one who's omniscient and immortal, and he's the pursuer of Rita. So like all signposts point to Phil. He even says at that diner in that uh, breakfast conversation, like, I'm a god. Not the god, but I'm a god. So like it should be Phil, but I think it's obviously Rita. Um, also, fun fact, Rita, the name means precious pearl, 
right? And so I saw some videos on YouTube that were sort of saying like, if you want to kind of run with the gospel parallel, like Phil is sort of like the guy who pursues the precious pearl at all costs, like the treasure hidden in the field, like we talked about in the National Mm, Treasure episode. Like maybe Rita. Rita is like the humanity that God pursues at all costs. But I agree with you. I think it's got to be Rita. So I'm giving my Jesus award to Rita. I think she embodies truth, goodness, and beauty uh, that Phil can't help but worship and and even really thirst for her approval. And I think that's kind of what does it for me is like, it's her approval that matters. And so she's kind of the bar of excellence in some ways. And I got 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. And this harkens back to the line that you talked about in your Lazarus Award. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So I know that that's kind of in the context of Paul warning the Corinthian church to treat their bodies as... Uh, as stewards of them because they're not their own. But this idea that you were bought with a price, you're not your own. Rita purchasing Phil, I guess, would be the highest gospel moment, uh, I think, of the Rita Jesus argument. So. 45, 50, 55, 60. I've been 60. Do I hear more? 389 So yeah, I kind of butchered that, but I'm going with Rita. I think it 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 feels like it should be Phil, but it just can't be. Yeah, I think the like it's not that Rita says the same thing over and over every single day. She does say some of the same things, but it's that her character is fundamentally the same. And I think that's really good and revealing of the character of God throughout the entire Bible is that he does say different things in the old Testament than he does through the person of Jesus in the new Testament. But fundamentally the character underneath that is the same. Like there are different contexts and different situations that lend themselves to different forms of communication, but really like God was and is and is to come and is unchanging. And I think within the groundhog day context, like Rita is unchanging. Yeah, I like your sort of independent variable, dependent variable thing. It's kind of like a little sixth grade science experiment. Like Phil is changing, (laughs) but uh, Rita is sort of like the dependent variable, like the effect of the change in a measured form. So that's it for the awards and now onto the Q&A. But first, an announcement. Need new running shoes? Want to support a local business? Omega Sports sells running shoes and a variety of athletic apparel and equipment, both in stores and online at omegasports.com. For online orders of at least $90, they offer free shipping everywhere and use the redemption code JIM for Jesus and Movies. Doing so gives you 10% off your purchase and gives another 10% towards our production costs. Again, that's omegasports.com, code JIM for a discount and to support us. Now onto our Q&A and guest submissions. So this week we have a very special treat. We've got my friend Justin Weaver from out in Los Angeles, California. Justin, how are you? Hey, greetings guys. I'm doing wonderful. I know you guys are talking about Groundhog's Day. And I have been making the observation that my life is a lot like Groundhog's Day right now because I am a new dad. And so every day is different, but the same. (laughs) Every day is kind of a routine of he'll wake up, he'll cry, we'll change his diaper and feed him. He goes to sleep, repeat, repeat. But then it's broken up by these wonderful moments of he'll giggle or he'll smile and have eye contact. And it's just the best. So I've compared my life to Groundhog's Day recently over this last month. That's awesome. 
So what are some ways or maybe just a way that you've seen the gospel kind of jump off the page in something you've read or listened to or, or watched lately? Yeah, so this would be something I played. I am on a podcast called Video Game Sommelier, and I'll tell you guys more about the podcast later. But last month, we played a game called Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, which was developed by a production company called The Chinese Room. And it's a walking simulator game set in a post-apocalyptic small English countryside where everyone has vanished. By the end of the game, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. But what you come to realize is there is some cosmic presence and kind of anomaly that the characters refer to as the pattern that is absorbing people and kind of making them one with it. And this got me thinking about a quote from A.W. Tozer, where he says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, because that has so many implications on how you live your life, how you think about your own value, how you think about the value of others, how you think about, you know, the meta narrative and does any of this have purpose? And so if your view of God is something like the pattern or maybe something like karma or the will of the universe, that can be pretty cold and distant and impersonal. And so I was thinking of that and how the person of Jesus stands in such stark contrast to that idea. The, the verse that was coming to my mind when I was preparing for talking to you guys was Hebrews 4, um, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And so, you know, the, the pattern wasn't dealing with sin or temptation, but this idea that Jesus came and revealed himself to us personally as a person. He came and hung out on earth. He came and experienced the human experience. He's not a, an it, he's a he. And so since Jesus revealed to us some of what God is like and who God is, we can live with you know so much more confidence and peace. There doesn't have to be an existential terror about this thing that's out there that's bigger than us and greater than us. God is bigger than us and greater than us, but he is also loving and he knows us and he cares about us. He's not just the pattern that will absorb us into himself, but uh, rather, you know, created us from himself. That just kind of was, I don't know, bouncing around in my head. That's so awesome. Thank you for sharing, Justin. Um, I think one of the things Kevin has talked about in past podcasts, specifically when we look at the intersection of the gospel and our culture, is that um, a lot of the art seems to do a great job of painting the locks, uh, and the gospel is the key to that lock. And so that kind of resonated when when you're talking about the whole idea of the rapture and not knowing who's behind that and, and the faces and the truth behind that. And so, um, yeah, I was wondering, do you, do you see this as being a specific theme like 
culture does a great job of painting hey this is the problem and this is our longing uh, and then seeing you see also the gospel intersecting with that by answering the question that culture cannot answer yeah it's interesting when you think about different pieces of art as you know either descriptive or prescriptive and i think like what you're saying a lot of art describes the question or the lock or the problem but at least in this game i didn't feel like it came to a very compelling answer well gospel traces in video games i'm not surprised are you graham no hey the uh the parallels go on and on and on and what did you say was the name of your podcast justin so everybody could know yeah it's called video game sommelier and the idea of it is it's kind of a combination of a book club and a wine tasting group so (laughs) my buddy ryan has played hundreds of video games and you know like all art it's all through the gambit and there's just so much content out there. How do you even begin to sift through it? So he uses his expertise of just having played a lot to select one game every month that will be worth your time and money to experience. And then we have robust dialogue around the themes and the characters and the story and what it is that the creators are trying to say about the world and their experience of life. And, you know, do we agree with it or not? Um, so it's a really fun podcast, and I hope you guys, uh, maybe some of your listeners will click on over and join us for some of those cheery conversations. So tell us a little bit about the Story Geeks and the Reclamation Society. So the Reclamation Society is a nonprofit organization that is seeking to reclaim parts of pop culture. And so Jay Shear is the director of the Reclamation Society. He is an author, he's a podcaster, and he's a filmmaker. The Story Geeks is a cultural exegesis branch of the Reclamation Society. And so on the Story Geeks podcast and YouTube channel, we do a lot of what we do on video game sommelier, but more specifically with pop culture broadly known you know marvel and star wars and things like that we just had a conversation about soul recently um we've got a conversation about wandavision coming up it's so different from what i feel like graham and i are used to so it's cool to see different facets of what is ultimately the greatest story ever told exactly and it's just it's incredible how i think you will always find pieces of the character of God and how he created the world and people in anything. Cause that's the, the human condition. That's what we're all trying to understand and explore. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Justin. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you guys. This was a fun conversation. I look forward to hearing your conversation on Groundhog Day. Sadly, we have to stop the discussion there, but before we close, here's a quick shout out to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this discussion possible. Courtney, Kristen, Craig, Heather, and Jackson Carlock, Jacob DeRizio, Ben Dunbar, Graham, Janet, and Ken Hooten, Daniel Lee, Bess McLawhorn, Mike. With a particular shout out to Mike this week, Groundhog Day was his recommendation. So again, you can email us, moviewrex at jesusofmovies at gmail.com. But this is a shout out to Mike in particular. Uh, keep going though. John Pabone, Andy Simmons, Kim Streamer, and Clay Young, thank you all so much for your support. 
Our monthly production schedule is posted on our Instagram, at Jesus and Movies. Give us a follow and a like so you can see what movies are up next. If you'd like to support the Jesus Movies podcast, Patreon is our preferred way of support. For $1 a month, you can become a patron and pick the movies, get shouted out on the podcast, and featured on our Instagram. So if you'd like to join the group, please do so at patreon.com slash Jesus and Movies or on the free Patreon app. Anyone can always write us at jesusandmovies at gmail.com, and we hope you will. And lastly, if you're listening on Apple, please give us a review. Let us know what you think. Uh, That helps Graham and I to uh, learn more about what's working and what isn't, as well as to reach new people. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jesus Movies podcast, and we hope you found some goodness, truth, and beauty. Know that God bought you with a price to rescue you from meaninglessness, and we'll see you next week.